clubhouse. I'm still a detective. I need to seek the truth. No matter how painful. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Go for someone so hell-bent on uncovering secrets. You sure do have a lot of your own. You're right. I need to work on that. But Danny won't be there. Not like she is here. Son, stay. Stay for her. A partner you can actually be honest with. You'll never have that if you open that box. It's your fault. You made me this way. Well, you can point fingers as much as you want, but when you're miserable and alone, remember, you had a choice. No, I didn't. Welcome to The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I am Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila again. Tonight we're discussing episode six of season two, Headcase. So Headcase was written by Wyatt Kane and was directed by Lisa Robinson. So Wyatt is a credited story editor for the series, and this is his third written by credit, having written Family Friend and Eye of the Needle from season one. A little fun fact, Eye of the Needle, that was the great Carousel Killer episode uh, from season one that was directed by... By Lisa Robinson, tonight's director. So this was a reunion of sorts for Wyatt and Lisa uh, this week. And man, what an episode it was this week. Woo! I couldn't wait to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was t- especially coming into a two-week, uh, a, a real cliffhanger going into a two-week break because the show's not back now until the beginning of March. Before we get started, you should also check out our Spotify playlist that we've created. It's a little bit of mood music to help you along as you wait the days in between the episodes. And if this is the case, the weeks in between the episodes. I mean, come on, we, get, you, we need to bulk it up it would not march 2nd i think the next episode doesn't come until march 2nd that's a long 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 time i know i know especially with that ending good lord good lord much of a well i mean this is like what like don't tell me it's like a mid-season cliffhanger it's not mid-season yet is it no no i I don't think so you know i haven't actually seen how many episodes i and i don't know if they've intentionally not said how many episodes they're doing this season because of stuff is still weird in covid times but yeah, I, I have to think they're doing more than 12. So, no, I don't think this is mid-season. I think this is just, you know, the show hasn't actually had a repeat yet. So this is just the time for it to kind of catch up. I, the screeners that we're getting are being finished literally less than a week before they air. We're getting them typically Friday afternoons. They're being finished Thursday nights. You could We could tell with the dates and, and locks on them when they're completed. So they're just staying ahead of the curve with these episodes. So the two Just weeks, barely, yeah. yeah. So the two weeks gives them a little chance to air some repeats, air some other stuff, and also gives the post production team time to finish another set of episodes. 
some breathing room. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. It's always nice to bank up a little bit ahead. Anyone who ever has done a podcast definitely knows the value of banking up some episodes. Uh, speaking of the new episode coming out in two weeks, uh, just a little more housekeeping. You'll notice that we haven't announced a guest this week uh, because we don't have a guest this week. Between the holiday airing right before Tuesday night's episode, before the episode you guys just watched tonight, and the winter storms that have been in the Northeast and all over the country, it's just it was just kind of chaos this past week to schedule someone, but we'll be back in two weeks with episode seven and we're going to have an exclusive interview with lou diamond phillips in that episode because ldp is actually directing episode seven of this season so that's going to be a really exciting conversation to come back from a break with that is fantastic i'm looking forward to that for sure you know let's turn to tonight's episode just some big you know big picture things this is one of those episodes that will go down in the series as a core episode to watch in order to understand malcolm bright and his psyche the idea that his need for truth comes above his own happiness there's that great line uh, actually you know, we have the clip i can play the clip for you hold on i'm still a detective I need to seek the truth, no matter how painful. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Though for someone so hell-bent on uncovering secrets, you sure do have a lot of your own. You're right. I need to work on that. But Danny won't be there. Not like she is here. Son, stay. Stay for her. A partner you can actually be honest with. You'll never have that if you open that box. It's your fault. You made me this way. Well, you can point fingers as much as you want, but when you're miserable and alone, remember, you had a choice. No, I didn't. Whoa. I mean, talk about a mission statement for Bright's brain, for Malcolm's brain. Uh, that's it's all right there. It, it, the idea that the need to seek truth, to be a detective above all else, including his own happiness, the nastiness of our brains in the form of Martin in Malcolm's case to play the Danny card is like that last manipulation. Brains are fucked up and <laughs> and they can be so, so cruel to us in so many ways. So often, I, I think everyone can identify at some point having your brain talking to you and sending all kind of like nasty messages. And, and threatening messages down to you. And really, this is what Malcolm is, is struggling with almost this whole episode. So when people look back, when the chapters, the book is written on Prodigal Son and closed, I think this will be one of those episodes people point to for really understanding what makes him tick. What did you think of the overall episode and its contribution to the Prodigal Son mythos? I think you're you're spot on with the theory that this is a link into Malcolm's brain or like an inkling into Mount malcolm's brain where we're understanding him at at a basic core level like his subconscious like it's, it's about as truthful as you're going to get and he's choosing truth over happiness and the quote from martin where he says you know if you open that box you know danny won't be there it felt like an abuser grooming their prey it's very much that 
he has a choice and he's choosing to be unhappy in lieu of the truth. So yeah, I, I like the I like the notion that this is gonna go down as lore and foundational information about Malcolm. But I will tell you that this is some of the most inventive and intellectual writing that I think we're gonna see in all of TV. Y'all are getting a minor tonight in philosophy with this show. Where else are you going to find something about Schrodinger's cat, Jung's dream states and the power of the subconscious, which is something that Freud wrote extensively on. All three of those philosophers were mentioned, philosophers and scientists were mentioned in tonight's show. So that is something that you're not going to find anywhere else. I guarantee it. Don't at me. Uh, Schrodinger's cat made me laugh when Martin were, when, when subconscious <laughs> Martin mentioned that it made me laugh out loud. We actually have that clip, but it's part of a, a, another clip I'm going to play in a little bit. Um, yeah, maybe me laugh out loud dreams are fascinating the idea of working out problems through your dreams is something i am fascinated by it's something i experience on a pretty regular basis i find often when i remember my dreams it often is through working out something something that was nibbling at the back of my brain that i wasn't maybe even aware of and you you wake up and you feel like you had some kind of breakthrough and maybe you can't remember all the details but things like the swan becoming everywhere the symbolism in dreams why why is there a giant bird in sitting in your dream or you know why are you sitting on top of a lamppost looking down on a scene or weird shit that happens in your dreams always kind of it always means something is it important or not well to your brain to your subconscious it's important at least at that moment it was an interesting use of dream analysis and dream theory in this episode i thought because malcolm makes the assumption that the most important thing at the time he falls down the elevator shaft on his mind is just solving the case it's just solving this immediate case the death of of lyle the architect well, obviously, that wasn't going to be the answer. I mean, Malcolm wasn't the only right, right. Well, <laughs> we're, we're not the most important. And and to Malcolm's brain, it, it's funny how little he understands himself for how smart he is it, with all of the things going on with everything with Ainsley, with everything that he is always processing with his father and that relationship and who he really is. You know, who is Malcolm Bright is one of Malcolm Bright's core concerns. And so you know, I, I was delighted, but not at all surprised when he shoots Rupert Swan, falls down, and that guy falls down the elevator shaft, and he's like, why am I not waking up? I solved the murder. Um, you know, it was just a nice little twist, but not, not a terribly surprising twist, but I'm glad that the story actually didn't end there. I would have been disappointed had he woken up at that point. You know, he still had more work to do in his dream. Are you familiar with dreams? Did you did you have to look up the young stuff and the Freudian like dream analysis things? I was two credits shy of a minor in philosophy. So really, yes. Oh well, so this episode is right up your alley. It's right yeah. up your alley. I was like, I'm not staying in college for two credits. No. <laughs> That's really funny. You know, it's um, the show. This episode in particular did a really good job of doing callbacks to prior episodes. Even in this scene, the the scene we're talking about, where subconscious Martin comes up behind him and is trying to talk him out of leaving. Again, it's it's centered around the imagery of the girl in the box, the in the box shaking violently. But there were a couple of instances of it in this episode where, through the conversation, there were really natural flashbacks 
to other things that had happened in earlier seasons. You know, when they are at Claremont with Jessica and Martin and M. Malcolm, and Martin says, imagine discovering you've been lied to about a murder, you know, violent and erratic behavior. And, you know, that may result from that. And then Malcolm has flashes to several of the crazy antics he did last season in season one. The antique gun and the bomb and the window still remains my favorite of all of those. And I'm glad that they showed that. Oh, my God. He's got the craziest of eyes in that scene. I love yeah. it. Yeah. But I mean, they, but we also got a flash to when he's, ta- when he's talking to the team about the profile, about how it, it takes a remarkable killer to stay calm and cool and collected after you've killed someone. And you see a flash to him with the bone saw uh, and that that wicked smile, that Jekyll and Hyde smile standing over Endicott's body. And then when Ainsley, when he's talking to Ainsley and she calls him in the last dream sequence when he's going to uh, refresh the snacks, he says, and she says, Malcolm, and he hears the name and he flashes to her face covered in blood right after she kills Endicott. So it was just really good use of callbacks uh, that the show used tonight to really drive home how deep this show is and how and how deep uh, a lore the show has really created for itself that's really impressive to do only six episodes into your second season you know and it also rewards all of the fans who can watch those scenes and know where they come from for me anyway it makes for a very fulfilling hour to watch of television and this was just also just such an interesting tack to take with a sto- with telling a story. I mean, you're you're diving into subconscious and you're you're showing alternate reality. So you do need to have the background and the familiarity to know what's real, what's not real. Like I feel bad for the person who just stepped into Prodigal Sun tonight and go like, huh, what? But the people who've been here since episode one are all are all in for this. So I was excited for this type right. of storytelling. Uh, let, let's talk about murder weapon tally tonight. You know, we, we, you know, we haven't had a lot of outrageous weapons so, so far this season. Not, I feel at least not comparatively to season one, but tonight provided us with really two fun ones. We got a ball bearing compass jammed <laughs> through an eyeball and we got death via typewriter by a guy who uses a manual typewriter. I mean, he was literally killed by his own words. So fun. I, I you know, that was, that was a, a fun twist. I like the idea of a serial killer who uses found objects. Oh, there's also the hammer at the bottom of the elevator shaft that with the skull. There you go. The 1963 uh, murderer, you know, the, the Bowery Rippers uh, 1963 victim that Wendell was uh, researching. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I like the idea of a serial killer who knows he's going to kill, but likes the challenge of just using found objects at the scene. It, it almost seems like a competitive reality show you'd get on like Netflix, you know, <laughs> like who can craft the best murder weapon from things found at the scene, you know? And it really just a test of your creative abilities, your your improvisation, your improvisational skills. You know? So instead of like Iron Chef, it'll be like what, like Iron Serial Killer? I would be like, um, you know, instead of nailed it, it would be like nailed it in your Killed head. It. it would be like nailed it in your head with a fucking gun. You know, Mike, like you're killing it, Mike. You're really killing there it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, you know, one of those kinds of things. I think that would be a lot of fun. I, you know, you get you get a serial killer behind bars to host it. I'm sure there has to be one that cleans up nicely in a suit behind bars. And I think Netflix would make a killing on that. Um, you know, I, I call copyright uh, on that. And so if you guys want to develop that show, give me a call. Producer um, cred, absolutely. For sure, for sure, for sure. I'll sell you my idea. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm almost a little bit shocked that that hasn't happened. You know, you can have OJ host it. You know, he has a whole 
whole book if I didn't do it. But if I did, here's how I would have done it. You know, it seems, it seems like time, right? So anyway, are you surprised JT was a math class aficionado and that he could identify the actual like formal name of the compass? Not at all. JT is a man of many talents and many strengths, I would say. Not surprised at all. I mean, I really need JT to get back in the main storyline. He was pretty entertaining in the subconscious world journey in this episode, but I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty for him to get some real meat to dig into. I feel like we had it really dangled in front of us the first couple episodes of the season, but now he's just been kind of sitting idle. But uh, um, if right. nothing else, I, we need to get Frank. I want, I want Frank back on the show. So oh, we need God, to, yes. So we need, uh, we need him to get some good meaty stuff here. I, I have such a, a cynical feeling about this. I feel like he was so light and buoyant in this episode like bubbly almost and i just feel like we're going to be shocked to reality in the next episode i don't know why i just have a feeling that like his bad storyline you know with, the, with everything that's happening to him is just going to come roaring back and i just feel like this was like the calm before the storm call me cynical i don't know but i just feel like this was lulling us into like this little soft you know area where jt's all good and i just feel like next time it's gonna be bam you know we're gonna be in a very sad state with jt i feel one of the well i guess the 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 major character here that uh that i wanted to talk to you about was mark margolis are you familiar with him the guy who played rupert swan oh my god for sure i mean for for me he is was and always will be the horrible villain hector salamanca from breaking bad and better call saul i mean he's been in a bunch of things he was actually in uh snowpiercer he was he played old ivan in the very first episode of sneer oh my god yes from, from last season which we're covering here at pod clubhouse you should go check out Prepare to Brace with Paul and Inez and uh, Kat. Uh, it's a great, great podcast and a great show on TBS. You should definitely go watch. Um, yeah, so he, I mean, so recently, that's the most recent thing I've seen him in, but for years, he's been playing Hector Salamanca, this real foil, horrible man on uh, the Breaking Bad series. I have a question for you. Obviously, I know you're an Ace Ventura fan from back in the day. He's the grumpy old landlord. He's Ace Ventura's grumpy old landlord in Ace Ventura. And he looks the same yeah, as he did in 1994. Yeah, he's one of those guys who's just always looked old. But in a way that he's never, ever changed. He's had the same kind of receded hairline. Yeah, it uh, hasn't changed. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable, actually. I mean, I think I looked it up. I think he he's somewhere in the like 90 year old range. I think he's like 80 or 81, something like that. I looked him up, too. I think he's in his 80s, I'd say. I thought he was I thought he was born in 39. Well, wait, if he was born in 39. Yeah, th that's right. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah, he was born in yeah. 39. So he's 81. Yeah, I don't know why. I have math. Math is hard. Apparently, I yeah. did not do well in math class. But yeah, I mean, for 81, though, he's still popping up out of that wheelchair in this episode like a real boss. He's spry. Yeah, I mean, he's spry enough to push a guy down an elevator shaft and, and wily enough. Uh, he plays a great bad guy. And he was a little broken and sad at the end of this episode, you know, when he kind of just, uh, you know, he gets presented with a skull and he stands up and he just says, I'm sorry to his daughter. You know, the idea that he has this impulse to to kill even still even after so many years he still feels a need to go and do that though i guess i get the impression that maybe he hadn't killed in a long time that he only kills lyle because he was about to be found out and he didn't want his daughter to know yeah i feel like he quelled it for his family and now yeah. at the risk of being exposed he had to break out that persona again 
right? He had to put on the old the old death face. But yeah, I mean, when he stands up, and again, a, a shock of the daughter's face. I think everyone was shocked except for Malcolm, the way he pops up out of the wheelchair without an issue. Um, and well, it just sure, says, Malcolm has seen him, you know, do well, his work. Well, it's true. It's true. Yeah, he had a whole dream about it. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it, it, it's just so sad when he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he kind of just turns around to take his cuffs and the daughter, you know, the daughter's like, what in the actual hell? Greta, Greta didn't even know her father. Sad, 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 sad. <laughs> so one of the things the show does really well is also bring in some of the aesthetic to the set, right? So like architecture in New York is something that, you know, us as New Yorkers, we, we kind of take it for granted, but there are some styles that are quintessentially New York and Art Deco is definitely one of those styles. So the Ken Mare Hotel, although fictitious, does highlight some of that Art Deco architecture. So some of the things that New York is known for is like the Chrysler Building, and that is 100% in the Art Deco style from the triangular angles and from the just the the geometric shapes that are used in it even the empire state building and 30 rock as well are all well-known examples of art deco architecture and that would have been like a style that was popular in the city building around like in the mid to late 20s through like through like the late 30s and early 40s right yeah like well really the great depression kind of killed the art deco style but uh yeah it was definitely on display around like 1930 when the chrysler building opened so this hotels is rumored to you know date back to that time especially like in its heyday if like duke ellington was known to have stayed there but i definitely see all of that glitz and glamour that's associated with art deco if you were to wipe off the grime at the kenmare oh sure and even when they do they they do the pullout and you see the name of the hotel on the front the sign the kenmare hotel sign Mm -hmm. just the font the the stylistics around the the name and just the way the like the awning yeah, just the way the awning is designed is very much in that style. It's a very evocative, especially of of the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building, for sure. It was sad that you know, I couldn't find. I went looking. I was like, did Duke Ellington ever actually live in a hotel? I was like, I was hoping maybe <laughs> maybe they had um, they had like based it on something, but I couldn't find any proof of that. But it seems like a real a real swinging place. I and mean, not only do you have this serial killer, you know, living there, but you have Dorothy Parker. You've got Eugene O'Neill is name dropped in this episode before hip were hipsters you had this beat crowd and uh yeah very really cool it, it, it almost feels like the kind of show that would have its own like backdoor pilot kind of like the same way like when you watch titanic it starts in like where the titanic is like old and cruddy and then it like zooms back in time and it comes to life and it comes to color i, I in my head that's how like the ken Mare hotel tv series would be like it would zoom from the modern day rundown look into this really bright vibrant technicolor spectacle you know in the early 30s kind of thing yeah, well, Art Deco really was the epitome of luxury and exuberance and glamour. So that all fits. For me, JT's reference to Tower of Terror was so dead on because if you've ever been on that ride in Disney World or Disneyland, though I think it's actually closed in Disneyland now, the building that you enter is very much, again, in this kind of Art Deco style and just yes. the, the rundown, <laughs> creepiest fuck nature of it with the elevator that would have had an actual operator in it back in the day and it just everything about it. I actually had thought to myself, this looks like something out of Tower of Terror before JT said it about a couple minutes later. <laughs> so I, I felt very validated for having that same kind of thought. So also, I love Disney. So any, any, anytime I can think of uh, a Disney reference, it makes me smile. So I, I, yeah, I, and I love that ride. I just love the, you know, 
all, all of the, the the glitz and the glamour and then the horror of it. So I now, love it. I would never profess to be a serial killer savant. We really leave the true crime murder mayhem to you here at Pod Clubhouse. Mm. But I couldn't find any reference to a Bowery Ripper. Um, I went looking. I tried. But, you know, it, I guess maybe it really is a deep cut serial killer. Maybe it really is a serial killer deep cut. And that's why I couldn't find any evidence about it. Or it's just, you know, fictitious. Or just, you know, well, well, when, when <laughs> if you if you reference it as a deep cut, then is it fictitious, or do you just have to be within a certain circle to know about it? I don't know. Well, Real. I've definitely started using my private browser history so that I don't have to have any like incriminating conversations later on in my life. So, uh, c- couldn't find um, anything on the Bowery Ripper either. Uh, that that is a smart call, and it will keep the police away from your home, seizing your computer. <laughs> um, that is not a conversation you want to have with your son. So yeah, uh, no, let's get into the, let's get into the episode uh, breakdown a little bit. I, we're going to take a little bit different approach than we normally do. Normally, we kind of go character by character. Here, we're actually going to go more real world events, and then a journey into Malcolm's subconscious, because I think that's the structure the episode took. And I think it just makes sense to talk about it this way, too, because I think the journey into the subconscious is all mostly useful to really talk about who Malcolm is. And so it's all Malcolm focused because everything that he imagined in there was just versions of himself, you know, or depictions of people in his life. But as his brain imagines them and not really them. So let's start in the real world. Let's start at Claremont with the parent ambush. How disturbing is it to you to see Martin and Jessica working together? I'm actually not that upset about it. I, I kind of liked their tag team approach and Jessica's pleading eyes like, Martin, come on, please, like, take the lead here. This is your world. This is your genre. And I liked it. I mean, I just don't know how Malcolm didn't think something was up from Martin's sing-songy voice of like, hey, can you come to Claremont for a visit? It was just very suspect. But um, no, I liked them working together. I find it a little creepy. These are two people who should not be working together. Honestly, I mean, this is kind of like if Malcolm and Ainsley were teaming up together, right? Malcolm and Ainsley represent the next generation of Martin and Jessica, and those two could be deadly together. (laughs) Pun totally intended. Um, (laughs) And so Martin and Jessica, that's a really powerful combination that I don't know that the world is ready for. I don't know that Mr. David is ready for it. I don't know that Claremont is ready for it. I mean, I long for Mr. David's days where, you know, Michanga day is his biggest worry but martin and jessica teaming up together that's i'm surprised they let jessica back into claremont but however yeah Yeah, i'm curious curious at the end when he offers her to stay and that he'll open up a bottle of fanta you know she calls him gross and leaves but with like a little playfulness to it Uh, is he gross because of fanta or is he gross because he wants her to stay these two are so sexual it's hard to tell their vibe it's hard to tell i think it's because he was asking her to stay i think that's that's more what i read from it because fanta orange soda is not bad i mean as far as soda goes fanta orange is pretty good i think couldn't tell you last time i had it but i took it more that it was he's gross for inviting her to stay if i had done my homework i would be playing for you guys right now the fanta theme song don't you want the want the fanta don't you want the want the fanta i mean it's like that's all we needed just you singing it was fine it's a total earworm it's a total earworm so disturbing as i maybe some found it or not disturbing as as not the two of them working together and really kind of ambushing malcolm which is you know kind of shitty of them but also a kind of classic parent move does that make their advice wrong or or do you agree that Ainsley deserves to know the truth and and if so is it even like way past time for Ainsley to know the truth this is a hard question 
I don't know what Ainsley stands to gain from knowing the truth at this point. And like, what are they going to do with that information? It's not like she can talk to a therapist. It's not like they're going to go to the police now because it's months and months. So now they're all going to be implicated. As far as Ainsley knowing the truth, I mean, there is good in knowing the truth. There is good in knowing what you've done and to own that to a certain extent. But I'm talking about like, you know, families hide things from each other sometimes. There's secrets. But murder is a different ballgame that I really don't have a lot of experience with. So ultimately, I think it would be good for Ainsley to know the truth. But I do think it is way past time. But again, Jessica only came into the knowledge very recently through her own intuition and frenzy. But also, I don't think there's any other way for Malcolm to have come to this meeting if he hadn't been ambushed. I don't think he would have consented to sit with the two of them to talk about this if he had known prior what the the subject matter was. I agree with that for sure, because in his mind, he thinks... I think he honestly believes or has at least convinced himself that he made the best decision for the family and for Ainsley and for himself in the moment. And he's kind of continued to double down on that. So I I think in the moment he thinks he made the best decision. And I think he's just been kind of reinforcing that. I don't know if he still agrees with uh, it's the best decision. And there's a part of me that has all season long, every time we've, we've been confronting this issue and this has become the big theme so far of the season is what is Ainsley not knowing doing to the family? What is it doing to Malcolm growing inside of me is this feeling that Malcolm is scared of Ainsley and is scared of her potential. And, and so in a way that his, his stated worry of if she knows the truth, it may break her in a like mental way. And, you know, when he says to Jessica, you know, we may lose her, you know, we had all kind of taken that at face and, and we, we talked about it on that episode about the idea that the worry and concern was for Ainsley having this mental breakdown. As time has gone on, my view has shifted a bit. And I think actually Malcolm is more afraid of if Ainsley knows Ainsley embracing this knowledge and weaponizing this knowledge and proceeding down the path of her father's footsteps. I think his subconscious really betrayed a lot of that fear. I mean, everything that he depicts Ainsley on in his subconscious is that she becomes a doctor following in Martin's footsteps. And according to Martin actually has more talent than even he does. Now that's all you have. You have to always take a step back and say, that's all Malcolm's brain creating that reality creating that reality that's a reflection of malcolm's thoughts malcolm thinks his sister has the ability to not only follow in martin's serial killer footsteps but become even better than it than him that's pace him right uh, that's really significant that is a really significant thing for the show to admit to us and for malcolm uh, through his subconscious to show us not that he knows he's showing us because it's a tv show but it's it's a really big development because i think if you if you rewatch the scenes where this has come up and watch it from the point of view of malcolm being scared of his sister and being scared of what she might become put together with a little bit of competition you know ainsley is the one that's always pushing the competition between them but i think malcolm feels it also it really changes the entire vibe and it really lowers the temperature in the room on, and it's really chilling what I mean to say of how Malcolm perceives his sister. That was a feeling I've had growing in me at this episode really kind of hammered it home for me. 
a question I have for you is, uh, you know, and you, you, you argued both sides on telling her or not telling her a few minutes ago. Do we get the end of this episode that we have Ainsley blacking out again, covered in blood, not knowing what happened in a panic coming to her big brother? Do we get all of that if she had known the truth sooner? Yes, we do. I, I feel even though, you know, I, I had, you know, both arguments, you know, just a few minutes ago, this is still within her and the killing of Endicott, I feel, has woken some sleeping giant in her, this dormant skill, this latent skill that she's got. And I feel like no matter what she knows or doesn't know, there's enough there, there's enough that's been uncovered or created in her mind that this happens no matter what. I think she becomes a killer. I think she's always been on that road. I think the seeds have been planted for that since since the very beginning of the very first season of the show. I think she is more in control of it. She is better able to process it if she knows about what happened with Endicott earlier. Does she kill someone? Probably either way. But does she have the same kind of blank look panic covered in blood? Had she had that knowledge? I don't know. I don't know because she's had this piece of her that she's been denied access to and knowledge of. And so she doesn't have a foundation from which to process what she is waking up to. And if she had known a bit about what had happened with Endicott, at least maybe she would have a little bit more control on the situation. She seems very floundering and confused and befuddled at the end of the episode. Um, And not a bit scary. I mean, she definitely is a little scary also, but she seems very disoriented. If, she had known what happened with Endicott, maybe less so. So I think the episode, I think the episode plays out a little bit different at the end if she hadn't this knowledge earlier. Oh, I don't think so because she had had these psychopathic, sociopathic tendencies that we've seen. And we go back to the scene at Claremont with her boyfriend, just the lack of empathy with the debutante killers. There's been some seeds that I, I don't know if she would have acted any differently had she had the knowledge. Maybe she would be able to process it better. But if she has this this issue where she blacks out, does this killing, and this is the result, I don't think her knowing anything would have helped her process that any differently. I'm just I'm a big skeptic and cynic here, it seems like. Uh, I just feel like this was a path that she's almost destined for. I, I also say that, too, because I feel like Ainsley was very off this episode. I mean, she's been off her game a little bit since the season finale for season one but she's very curt with malcolm this episode it's it's very unlike her did you pick up on those cues from her she was definitely very curt with malcolm outside the hotel which is not like her even when they're fighting she tends to submissive isn't the right word but she's she's she is sweet with her brother usually or at least jab him in the arm digging at him in good fun kind of way this was a very icy demeanor she had with him which was really odd but for me the thing that was most off about her was actually down in martin's office when malcolm comes to ask for the videotape that she took because he's looking for information on the landlord you know and he almost tells her the truth but doesn't her reaction struck me as almost disappointed that he doesn't tell her he just reiterates that he's the one who killed endicott which said to me that if she doesn't actually know the truth she at least has recovered enough memories to know that malcolm is lying to her to some extent that it's more complicated than 
just him killing Endicott, that she had more, she has enough memories now to know there's more of involvement on her part than he's telling her. So it was almost like she was testing him here and he failed it. For me anyway, that was what the look, uh, that was what the succession of faces she was making all kind of said. Like, are you going to be straight with me now, brother? And then he's not. And then she looks crestfallen and upset with him almost. And then tries to like bury it a little bit. How did you play out the scene out in front of the hotel and then that scene down at Martin's office? Well, the scene in front of the hotel when she finished the interview with uh, Vieja, is that his name? She was just so curt and just so short with him. And it's not something that we've seen before. So that was the first like inkling that I had that something was up with really her. Really aggressive with him. Yeah. yeah and, and almost very dismissive. Like she didn't even look at him. She was just down on her phone typing, um, which is also not a trait that we've seen with her. She's, she's respectful of her brother. Um, and I felt that that was very dismissive. I also had the same feeling when Malcolm went to Martin's office and she's there and working and he's asking for, for the tape. My notes are actually that she didn't believe him when he said that he'd killed Endicott and she watched it. And that was horrible. My note is actually like, she didn't believe him. I agree that she's pieced together enough to know that the, that the first person telling that Malcolm is giving her is not in fact, correct. So all of her actions, this episode are signaling, basically signaled to me that something big was going to happen at the end. All of the off behavior I felt was going to culminate in something. So when she was in his apartment and she just had this weird timber to her voice when she says, oh, Malcolm, you're home. Like, it's it's like she's not actually saying it, you know, so it was um, almost honestly, I got to tell you, I had to watch it a couple times because there's also some camera angles where the camera zooms in on Malcolm a little bit uh, in, in a way that was reminiscent of when he was like in his subconscious world. I, I was not convinced. It took me several viewings to convince myself that this was actually all really happening and not a Malcolm a vision of something again or some kind of malcolm psychosis that he was imagining all this in the end i convinced myself that it really was happening but if episode seven opens with this being some kind of dream again of malcolm's i would totally buy that it seems so ethereal how she was acting it was really weird but i mean if you've ever seen anybody sort of like in a state of like you know like a catatonic state that's them like it's like they're there but they're not all there so it's Mm -hmm. it's shades of them well i wonder if that's because we never really got to see is that really how maybe she also was at after she kills endicott i mean we see a little bit of it when he when he initially says i did this and because she's disoriented then remember she says at malcolm what happened and she's she's covered in blood splatter maybe that is her thing maybe she's a blackout killer maybe she's a blackout deadline killer uh you know (laughs) Um, that she doesn't remember the thing she's doing, which is atypical, right? I mean, I think serial killers tend to always remember what they're doing, but maybe her brain hasn't broken that far yet. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's there there are you know medical conditions, mental conditions where you do have psychotic breaks, and and you know people have memory lapses and and not able to recall what happened. But I was doing the same thing as you are. I was like, is this the dream state? Is this like a return to the subconscious Malcolm? Is this real Malcolm? I kept looking for the blood on the collar because that was... That was right. real. That was back to real Malcolm. Right. And right. I just kept looking to make sure there was blood on his collar. But again, I wouldn't put anything past these writers that there could have been some alternate reality state, 
you know, 2.0 where this happened and where Malcolm is maybe voicing the things that he's truly scared of. And it is Ainsley. I do feel that he is afraid of her. Uh, we saw the knife that Ainsley was using to set the table several episodes back. And that's when he got a glint back of her covered in blood. He's he's a little afraid of her because oh, yeah. she's definitely got some skills and some traits that he's either got and suppressed or doesn't have just through fighting it so much for so much of his life. But I have like a billion questions from Ainsley sitting on his couch revealing that she's covered in blood. At first I thought before anything really kind of happened with her coat, I was like, oh God, she's going to do something to him. She's going to hurt him somehow. And then I was like, who did she kill? Why? Is it someone she knows? Is it a random person? What happened to the weapon? (laughs) Are there any witnesses? Is Malcolm going to clean up the body? (laughs) I had a million questions. And all good questions, Sheila, but for another episode, not really for this one. Oh, wait, I'm not done with the questions, Mike. Then it was going back to Endicott. It's like, did Mal- what did Malcolm do with Ainsley while he cut up the body? Like, did Malcolm clean her up so that she didn't have to, like, clean the blood off her? Sorry. I know that that was very frenzy. <laughs> Were you drinking before we got no, out here? No, but this episode, this is why I was so excited to talk about it, because I had, like, literally a million questions. I feel like Jessica looking for the drop of blood. I have, so, like, I'm like a shark feeding right now because I have just so many questions. Well, so it's, I, I do like the possibility, because this is something that you and I talked about way back in the first episode of the season. How much of the Endicott cleanup were we going to see? And you and I, I think we agreed that the show would dole out the information as we needed it over the course of the season, that it wouldn't be one big dump of flashback. It would be in pieces. Now, we have seen the bone saw cutting Malcolm over Endicott's body several times, and we've seen Ainsley standing there blood splattered several times, but we haven't really seen a lot of the detail. There is a, a, a an inclination here for me that there's going to be a parallel between whatever Ainsley has done now versus post Endicott being murdered, that it would make sense for the show to show us parallel wise how both of these shake out. Maybe not to the point of Malcolm boxing up at FedEx and shipping body parts to Estonia, but at least the idea of what did he do with Ainsley? Did he put her to sleep? Did she just sit there catatonically as he chatted with his dad on the phone and and hacked up the body? You know, did she just pass out because she was so catatonic? You know, did he just kind of put her in the shower, Silkwood shower style, where she could just cry, you know, covered in her clothes in the bottom of the shower? I don't know. I don't know. I have a feeling he got one of Jessica's, like, you know, pill cocktails and gave her that I cleaned her up, gave her the pill, and and off he went to figure out with uh, Martin how to get Endicott to Lake Papus, whatever it was in Estonia. But it is interesting that she comes to him because, and she says, you know, I didn't know where else to go, and she says that she blacked out, which I all of that is consistent for how she handled the Endicott affair, what her brain did to protect her, the walls it threw up to protect her post Endicott. So a lot of your questions we may not actually have answers for yet. I mean, Malcolm may be needing to wait for Gil to text him that there's a new murder for them to go figure out, to try and figure out who did Ainsley kill and how, you know, it's the ultimate game of Clue. You don't even have a body. You don't even have Mr. Body. You know, you don't know if it was in the (laughs) kitchen with a lead pipe. 
You don't know. We don't know any of that yet. I would and, say from the blood splatter that it was not a lead pipe. Uh, no, I imagine it was probably a large, large knife. Um, yeah, maybe I, the one that she's carrying around in her purse. Who knows? Well, I mean, she, according to Malcolm's subconscious, she's got scalpel skills that surpass even their father, a surgeon, not the surgeon. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, a lot of a lot of big fucking question marks coming out of this episode, which was what makes it so great and also frustrating that now we have this two week break uh, of a cliffhanger to kind of sit with and yeah. But I love that, though. I love that because I, I've recently become so annoyed by people who no longer know how to watch TV because of binge culture. I have a renewed love for spending two weeks hashing out every fucking detail of a show and what possibly it could mean and what every little frame means and going back frame by frame and picking it all apart. I'm going to watch this episode again. I've watched it twice now. Maybe did I watch it? I think I watched it more than twice. I actually watched it three times because I pulled audio clips. And I'm going to go back and watch it and pick apart all the details that I'm sure I have still missed. And I, that's what I'm how I'm going to film my two weeks, rewatching all the episodes of the season, seeing what kind of clues. Because this is a show that rewards that kind of television watching. You can't have a Lost. You can't have a Prodigal Son, a, a, a narrative serialized show in the binge era. You need time to process. You need time to talk about it. And, the, and you rarely see things once so it's important to pay attention because it, it everything cycles back in this type of show there's one final question that i have and i apologize that if you thought that i was drinking based on the the rapid fire excitement that i had well it was that questions. it was that plus your inability to say basic words at the start of this but you know all of it together but you have adrenaline you have you are the opposite of ainsley where she's kind of very mellow your murder style is more frenzied yeah you know? I, I definitely stabs have stabs when one will do you, you no, kind no, of... no that was ainsley no ainsley had the slit of the throat and then the 50 stabs like that you know where yeah. one one will do you don't need the excess um no but i'll come at you with a flip chart and data and things like that so um funny. but <laughs> but at the very end, when Malcolm tells her the truth, finally, I feel like there was this dawning realization of all the things in her head that now were starting to make sense. There was this look on her face. And I don't know if you picked up on it or if, if this is just me sort of with my 50 questions that I had about what this murder means and, and the fact that she did it without Malcolm there, all of this. But him finally telling her there was this look on her face that I was just like, hmm, is she now are now things making sense for her? Oh, no, that's I mean, that's part of what's informing and why I was asking the question, does this episode end the same way if she knows what she had done beforehand? I don't think she has the confusion. I think it all makes a lot more sense to her what she has done now if she knows what came before. You know, when you, you've done a thousand piece puzzle and you get down and you only have 997 pieces and you're looking for the final three. This is that moment for Ainsley. She has finally found the last puzzle to complete the the murder scene in her head you know her jigsaw puzzle is now complete with this information but it was essential information i think that's part of what the test was she was giving malcolm down in martin's office also it was i know there's something here you're not telling me i know you're holding on to this last piece of the jigsaw puzzle why won't you give it to me you're disappointing me big brother you have never lied to me like this why are you lying to me like this now you're keeping me from my memories that's a big thing keeping someone from their memories making them feel insane that's essentially what malcolm has been doing to ainsley he has been making her feel insane and i don't know that's not really forgivable for one thing it's a little unforgivable and from her point of view 
well, this is fucking information I could have used yesterday, big brother. Like, fuck, I've just now gone killed someone and I don't know what is happening. If she has that information, even if she kills in a blackout state, in a frenzied blackout state, when she comes through and she comes back to herself, it all makes more sense if she knows that information. That's why I think it's a big deal. And this episode ends differently if she knew about Endicott and Malcolm had been straight with her before now. Even if she knows, I think she's still got this blackout tendency. She's like, um, what's his name? Ed Norton in Primal Fear. Like, she's got this, like, split personality. and She has these blackouts, and, and Roy does all the bad stuff. And poor Adam is just left <laughs> meek and mild, not knowing what's going on. I'm going to play a little clip here, and then I want to talk about this. Because this seems to be a, a, a creeping theme with Martin. Or, counterpoint, maybe you handled it wrong when you dropped a dime on dear old dad. I'm just saying... If he's fine with murder cover-ups, I could have done with a little of that energy back in 98. Enough, Martin. I like the idea of, you know, he's got big cover-up energy, and I could have done with a little bit of that back in 1998. (laughs) Uh, This is an increasing thing with Martin. Ever since Take Your Father to Work Day, that episode, this idea of Martin kind of needling Malcolm about dropping a dime on him has become a little bit of a recurring theme. And he says it like three or four times in just this one opening scene of the show. Is this just Martin being Martin being cute like he thinks he is? Or is this like a crack in Martin's facade with Malcolm that is going to keep getting wider and deeper? Is this a real issue for Martin? Yeah, so I think Martin is a little a little upset that Malcolm has shown this other side of him where he's able to cover up uh, some pretty nefarious things that some of his family does. And it, it he didn't stand to benefit from this this change in Malcolm. And granted, he was, what, 10 years old in 1998. But at the same time, I feel that whatever sharing and whatever breakthrough that they had in that Take Your Father to Work Day scene in the in group therapy, Martin is not yet done sharing what he has repressed with Malcolm all these years. At first, I thought it was Martin just being cute. And that's kind of how I I framed the question that way, because I I did initially think it was just his sense of humor. Hey, son, you remember when you dropped a dime on dear old dad? But like every lie has a little bit of truth in it. Every joke that someone tells also has a little bit of truth in it when it's at someone else's expense. And I think that's a little bit where Martin is at right now. Martin is at the sarcasm thinly veiling my animosity and my repressed anger towards you, son. You know, the one I love most in this world. But I'm actually pretty fucking angry about it. And I'm also a serial killer with a nasty temper. And a little bit of that is starting to show and crack and the stress is coming through and i feel like the longer martin stays in claremont if that situation doesn't change and it's been several episodes now since we've had talk of his escape if that situation doesn't change and martin doesn't get some relief on that stress valve of being stuck inside those walls i think the crack and the divide in his feelings towards malcolm are are gonna start to really really show because i do think there's a lot of lot of anger there towards his son um as much as he loves him as much as he finds their relationship in an interesting light nowadays there is all of this listen 
nothing lingers longer than family drama and another nothing lingers longer than family trauma for malcolm it was him being an eight-year-old kid or whatever back in 1998 turning in his father but for martin that's been now 20 years of him living with his son this little boy who he thought was the same as him turning him in i mean it's an uncomfortable point of view but it's certainly a point of view that exists that from martin's point of view he was betrayed by his son and he's lived with that for 20 years he's he has been suppressing that for 20 years and i think we're starting to see the cracks in that suppression so something we need to definitely keep an eye on and i think it was interesting how it kind of was just nestled in this larger ambush of the parents at claremont but it was there and it was there and it was repeated enough for us to take notice but it could easily been a detail you either laughed off or overlooked but i think there are nuggets and truth there that we definitely have to keep an eye on yeah we definitely can't brush it off it was too bold-faced all right so for me that really takes care of the real world i think we now need to spend the rest of the episode talking about the rest of this podcast episode talking about the journey into malcolm's subconscious and for me this clip serves as the entire thesis for the episode and as for the journey into Malcolm's subconscious, let's take a listen. Why are you so determined to wake up anyway? I know what I have to do now. But life is good here. We're one big happy family. Your sister isn't a killer. I'm not a killer. You got a great job, a happy relationship, and there's even Coco. Why would you ever want to leave? Because it's all a lie. This dream, vision, alternate reality, whatever. I thought it was what life would be like if you weren't a killer. But it's not. It's what life would be if I'd never found out. Really seems more of a semantic point. Suffering is real. Even if I don't open the box, the woman in there is still in pain. Now, Herr Schrodinger might disagree with you on that. So there you get your Schrodinger's cat theory of the girl in the box is both alive and dead until Malcolm opens it either way. But there's a lot going on there, though. And it's not semantics, dear Martin. The idea of this is what my perfect world looks like in my brain if you were never a killer versus... Even in Malcolm's subconscious, even in his wildest dreams, which is a phrase he goes on to say a few minutes after that, even in those wildest dreams, Martin is still a killer. It's just that the best Malcolm could ever hope for is that his father is a killer and it's never come to light. And so it never destroyed his life in the way that it did or wreck his life in the way that it did. But there is an inescapable truth that Malcolm, even in her dream state, even unconscious at the bottom of an elevator shaft, can't get away from ever imagining a world where his father isn't a serial killer. That's pretty powerful stuff, given how powerful the mind is and the shit that it can make up and the world it can create in our imagination. It's really powerful to think that even then, Malcolm's mind can't imagine a truly perfect world. And won't allow him to dwell in it. Well, yeah, I mean, there is a real war going on there. It's interesting the role that Mal that Martin plays. Danny plays a role in it in his subconscious too, but Martin really is given the gatekeeper role, right? The uh, he's really given the task 
of ensuring Malcolm doesn't ask too many questions or rock the boat too, too much in this subconscious world so that he gets hip to the jive that it's actually not real. It, it, remember, it all picks up this, this new world, this, this welcome to Oz moment starts with him waking up in the hospital after falling down the elevator or after being pushed down the elevator shaft with Danny and JT being there. There's not an immediate let on that this isn't real. It takes a few minutes for us to watch watch of watching for it to start being like this doesn't seem right there's something weird going on here what is happening this isn't right and then and then the show begins to show us clips of malcolm laying at the bottom of the elevator shaft and there's also a bunch of other things going on there too he's with danny he's a detective not a person working with the pd nypd but actually a detective um there's a bunch of clues that you could pick up on especially if you rewatch the episode and everyone should rewatch the episode yeah this is like a two to three at least I watched it three times and still still catching things. But I want to talk to you about the idea that Martin is making here uh, and, and is there value to it. Not that I want Malcolm to not wake up, not that I want Malcolm to die at the bottom of an elevator shaft, but is there value to what subconscious gatekeeper Martin says about living in this world why are you so determined to leave it think of all the good things you have here is that a valid thing to embrace to to, to try and finally be happy it's such a hard statement it's such a hard stance to make because malcolm is if nothing he's a truth seeker he, he's hell-bent always on you know finding the cases finding out who the killer is delivering justice the way that it should be it would be completely out of character for him to continue to embrace the falsehoods especially when he's known all throughout the subconscious state that something isn't right there's all these jarring stirring moments of malcolm coming back to consciousness laying on the floor of the elevator shaft and it happens after every interaction that isn't in reality. You know, the dinner with Martin at, you know, family dinner with Martin and cuddling on the couch with Danny, seeing Gil in Claremont. There's all of these jarring moments that bring him back to reality. And he's not going to allow himself to live in a state where he's living untruths. He's so dedicated to the truth and even at his own expense. And he says something with Danny in subconscious reality that he says that he doesn't, it feels like he doesn't deserve happiness. And that's a really sad affirmation or admission on Malcolm's part is that he, for some reason in his life, he feels that he needs to live this way. And he's intentionally, now I feel like he's intentionally closing himself off emotionally. We saw a little bit last season where he opened up to Eve and we see how that ended for him. So I feel that he's just walling himself off emotionally, which is maybe why something hasn't happened with Danny in reality. And I feel like there was the perfect opportunity at the end of this episode to move that narrative forward. And I feel like it's stuck in neutral. Yeah, it's actually a great little clip. Uh, let's listen to it and talk a little bit more about it. <laughs> I just uh, have this nagging feeling. And with you, with my family, and I'm happy. I have everything I want. But there are moments where I feel like I don't deserve it. You deserve all of it. Welcome to me. You are the best person that I know. There's a version of Malcolm, there's a part of Malcolm's brain that understands he's entitled to be happy, 
and is deserving of happiness. But I think you're right. I think there is a self-flagellation going on here where he feels like, and then adding the Endicott stuff up on top of it, on top of all the other trauma and PTSD he carries around, adding in the Endicott stuff on top of it, Malcolm has really come to this place where he feels like he is a danger to the world. And he is someone who has forfeited the right to be happy, that he needs to live on this isle of of isolation of self-isolation which which makes his subconscious time with danny all the more sad and and bittersweet because you're right there is a time there is a there is a moment back in the real world at the end of the episode where he could have actually opened up to danny in an even more vulnerable way and seized on what seemed like an opportunity by her to maybe go to the next level or maybe to probe their relationship in a deeper way. But he is so bent on not only not deserving of love, but almost like he's a danger to them. It's, it's, it's actually very reminiscent of the Gil-Jessica conversation about how the Whitleys are cursed and being around them is, is almost toxic, which is what kind of Danny warns Gil against. And Jessica, you know, uses that as grounds to break up with Gil or to swear off any relationship with him. Malcolm also has this feeling of I am damaged goods in a dangerous way. It's sad because in his perfect world, even where his father is the serial killer still, uh, even though the world may not know about it, his perfect world is encapsulated by a relationship with Danny. Because that's a thread that runs throughout all of the other memories. Even when he's with the functional Whitley family, they're still talking about Danny. Even when he's just with Martin going through and Martin's kind of keeping an eye on him, subconscious Martin is keeping an eye on him as he goes to try and solve the case in his brain, Martin still brings up Danny. Even as the last-ditch effort that subconscious Martin employs in order to keep Malcolm from opening the box and waking up from this dream, he plays the Danny card. That's Malcolm's subconscious very last card to play. Its most powerful hand is here in this world, you have Danny. You have a relationship with her, and she understands you and accepts you for who you are, and you can be honest with her. Sheila, that's so fucking powerful for a guy who never really gives into his emotions other than Eve. Like, and we saw how that worked out, like you said, for his brain to be telling him these things, for us to be seeing these things, that is so powerful. His brain's final play to keep him from waking up could have been anything, but it was Danny. It was the enticement of what Danny could mean for his life and happiness. The show can't walk that back now. That's fucking out there. That's huge. And having Martin be the one to deliver this in his self-conscious is... I'm no psychiatrist. I'm no psychologist. But the fact that Martin is delivering this soliloquy in in Malcolm's subconscious. All of the important, all of the important soliloquies. But you know, I mean, yeah. this one in particular, sure, sure, yeah. the fact that it's in his subconscious and Martin is the one that's saying it, especially after what has happened in reality, where Martin's like, you know, you could have. Where is that, you know, behavior when you dropped a dime on Daryl dad? So the fact that Martin is the one delivering this death knell to like Malcolm's happiness, it's so telling of how much hatred Malcolm has in his heart for his father, for what he's done to him. Mm -hmm. And it's just so powerful and it's so sad because it didn't have to be that way. And Malcolm refusing to give in to that 
the alternate reality or that alternate version of himself that could have been, he knows that that none of that's real. And yeah. he, but it's still there no matter what. Like the fact that it was there and it played out in his subconscious is just uh, the show is just phenomenal for oh. the for the writing, for the inventiveness of it. Forget all the philosophers, but just this alone, having Martin deliver that statement and dissecting it the way that we are makes you see how much Martin has really just fucked up Malcolm his whole life. He, I mean, listen, if you go back to the clip we played earlier, the Malcolm, the one of the final things that subconscious Martin says is, if you're going to go be miserable, just remember it was your choice. And Malcolm says, he says a lot of things, but he says, you may be this way. And he's talking about Father Martin in the real world, not subconscious Martin, but in his brain, it's all kind of mixed up. But he he's still putting on Martin for being the way he is. But also important there is that it's not really a choice. He can't accept this happy world that he has the i'm happy with you i'm happy with my family that he tells danny on the couch in his subconscious mind journey it's not really a choice it's you know if i have to label all these clips when i pull them into the system here and i have that one labeled as choice but it's really not a choice and he's exactly right to say that it is so so painful to know that this is what he has to really then struggle with and having all of these conversations in his subconscious really frames his relationship with danny out in the real world even in this episode i'm gonna i want to play for you three clips now because there were three times where malcolm says to danny in this episode it's complicated i wouldn't want to bore you now the first one is in the beginning of the episode before his mind journey and she's asked him a probing question about why he got called to claremont and is everything okay he says it's family stuff complicated i wouldn't want to bore you she almost says something but doesn't and she swallows whatever she's about to say and that becomes really important for later on but here's this clip just to hear them kind of one after another so this is the beginning of the episode before malcolm has gone on his journey what are they upset about family stuff it's uh, complicated wouldn't want to bore you That twisted music, that is taking the place of Danny opening and then closing her mouth and saying something, which kind of tracks, right? That's a relationship, right? You ask a colleague, you know, a colleague, even one that you're close to, I know you're going through a thing. They give an answer. You don't do a follow up. Okay. Second clip, they're on the couch. Danny asks Malcolm, her boyfriend that she lives with, what's wrong? And this is how that conversation goes. This is when this is subconscious Malcolm, who is in a relationship living with subconscious Danny. What's the matter? Seems so far away. Oh, it's nothing. I wouldn't want to bore you with. The one thing you never do is bore me. And we don't keep secrets from each other, mainly because I'm an amazing detective and it would be impossible. Hey, I'm a detective too. Mm-hmm, but I'm better. Really playful, wonderful, exactly how you would think that scene would play out by with those two with their personalities if they were together in real life just again let's say nothing of the fact that they wake up in bed together what a what a sexy new heart moment that was right if, if the new heart show was a sexy show that's how that all kind of plays out when he wakes up and he's like in bed with uh his uh other tv wife anyway but that's the the neither here nor there um yeah so that's a really interesting concept this idea that to malcolm the idea that danny 
wants to really know sincerely what's going on with him. And by the way, baby boy, I never find you boring. For Malcolm, I think that's a really important thing, you know, because I think boring there stands for not only boring, but I think it also stands for odd or a freak or damaged or dangerous and I don't want to be around you. I think boring, the way it's being used in the show, is code for a whole host of horrors that Malcolm doesn't want to subject her to. But she's saying, no, no, we don't keep things from each other. I love you and you're never boring to me. What's your take on that before we play the third clip? It's it's like she's accepting him. Like, so by her saying you never bore me and, and all of just like, just how their interaction is. So in the subconscious state with them together, it was heightened, but this is really how they are in reality. She's always interested in him. She's always asking like, is everything okay? You know, you know, call to Claremont. There, there's, there's little inklings that she accepts him for who he is and he's walled around himself. Like he's created this wall that he won't even allow himself in the conscious world to see what's already there. It's always there. Like she's, she's accepted him. I, I would say like their galvanizing moment in season one was the, um, was when they went undercover together. Mm-hmm. Like from then on, I feel like that was a very galvanized friendship and she's accepted him for just who he is. Like, she, like, yeah, okay, fine. He's just bright being bright, but he refuses to allow himself in reality to see what she's offering him. And that's what I, I took from the parallel of You'll Never Bore Me that is said in both states. I, I agree with you. Also, you, you hit on something that I also meant to bring up before. In the dream world, she never calls him bright, which is almost what Danny almost always calls Malcolm. He goes by Malcolm Whitley in his subconscious state. He's actually not going by Malcolm Bright. That person doesn't exist in his subconscious world. He actually gets to still use his last name. But she calls him Malcolm. She calls him Malcolm in this scene. That and she calls him Malcolm Whitley at one point. She says, Malcolm Whitley, you're one of the best people I know. Right, right. And I think the clip we just played before where they were also on the couch, right? And that's where we learned that he's using going by Whitley and not Bright. But it's it's important, though, because when you work with someone, it's not uncommon to call them by their last name. It's a familiar way of speaking to someone, but it's not overly sentimental or overly emotional. You know, if someone always calls you by your last name, Caputo, 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 and then one day they call you Michael or Mike. I'm speaking about myself now. It would be weird if someone called you that. Um, That'd be insanely weird. It makes you stop and turn to them and look at them because it's a whole tonal shift in how they are talking to you. It is a signal without being an overt signal that this is a different kind of conversation we're about to have when I've changed now how I identify to you. It's just how humans speak to each other, whether you're aware of it or not. It's how we refer to each other. People consistently call each other the same thing. When Malcolm calls his father when when Martin calls him on his phone from Claremont when he says Dr. Whitley that's a conscious choice that's just not Malcolm just letting a name spill out about his father right he's saying Dr. Whitley because he's trying to make distance between the father-son relationship he's trying to keep his father at arm's length as a colleague or peer not as father who's a serial killer but he does have the moment in season one when Martin's being attacked in his cell and he Mm -hmm. goes dad Yes. Yes. And that is the only time that I can recall that he said dad and not Dr. Whitley. 
And it, right. it was to evoke a response. So yes, you know, if I were to call you Michael, I never call you Michael. I only ever call you Mike. You would be like, yes, right. You, yes. Right, <laughs> right. And, well, and exactly. In the same way, if all of a sudden you called me Caputo, I'd be like, oh, fuck. Like what something. Like, what did I do now? Right, right, something has happened, right? There's a tonal shift. And so when Danny is calling him Malcolm, it's like a whiplash moment, even though by that point we realize that this is a fantasy state. This is not a real state. It's still a whiplash moment, but it carries out though into the real world with this final clip that comes at the end of the episode back in the real world this is after malcolm has solved the crime and they're back at the precinct what about me was i uh, different in your dream yes and no what does that mean Dream stuff. It's complicated. I wouldn't want to bore you with it. The one thing you never do is bore me. Good night, Malcolm. And she calls him Malcolm! And she calls him Malcolm. And the show's editing, too, if you're watching it and not just listening to it, when she says, the one thing you never do is bore me, the show cuts back and forth really quickly from her on the couch uh, in the fantasy world, in the in the subconscious world, and the precinct. And it's cut together seamlessly so that, like, Aurora Purnell's voice is uninterrupted because it's intentionally meant to mimic both times and it's a signal to malcolm that it actually could be the thing he was dreaming about but will he do it will he take the opportunity no i don't think so because of all of the reasons we've been talking about the way he views himself as this danger this menace i i I truly believe he will not subject danny the way he sees it he will not subject danny to being in a relationship with him because of the danger i think he feels that would place her in or and or the idea that he is not worthy or deserving of having someone that's going to make him happy those three Danny clips with the complicated and then whether or not she says you never bore me really, really important. Maybe the most important string to take away from this episode. I think, I don't know if you viewed it beforehand in that light, but hearing the three clips back to back taken from the three different sections of the episode, how does that speak to you about Malcolm and his feelings, not only his feelings for her, but what he may be willing to do or not do or pursue or not pursue with her. Well, hearing the three clips together really drives home the point that he really does, in his unconscious state, feel that he is somehow undeserving of love and happiness, and he's going to continue this wall. But at the same time, the fact that his unconscious and conscious Danny blended together seamlessly, and the fact that she called him Malcolm, he might allow himself, I don't know, this this might be like an uncharacteristic break, maybe he has some sort of like reflection on this state that he was in and he was able to you know, solve everything in 20 minutes, he might take a step back and, and reflect that she is seeing him for who he is and accepting him no matter what. The fact that he is odd and, and a little bit weird and the fact that she just allows him to be that without judgment, without pretense. It would be an interesting study in Malcolm to see what he takes away from this subconscious learnings. 
we saw how how badly Martin acts in his unconscious state and how good Danny acts to him. So I, I would like to see him explore that. Whether or not he's going to, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm still a big shipper for Danny and Malcolm, but at the same time, I, I feel like that struggle for truth and the not deserving of happiness were the two really big resonant themes for Malcolm in his unconscious state. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not optimistic about his happiness future. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big bright whale shipper myself, and I want to see them together. I think they fix the damaged parts of the other really well. I think they are a good salve for each other. And so I want to see them together. But my takeaway from this episode is that Malcolm is still too internally hurt and torn up and still operating from too much of a place of trauma to let that happen. And I think because he worries about the same way Jessica kind of worries about Gil and what being with a Whitley may do to him, I think Malcolm really does worry about hurting her in an un unintentional way by bringing her into the inner circle of his craziness and chaos. Um, that is being a Whitley. You mentioned this earlier, and it fits here, too, that he feels, whether he heard the statement or not, about the Whitleys being cursed. He didn't hear that, but I know deep down in his core he feels that, and I don't think he wants to inflict that on anybody else. Yeah. So if Martin serves as the subconscious gatekeeper to keep Malcolm there, and Danny represents the his greatest heart's desire in his subconscious, the other big person to talk about is what does Gil represent? And so before we finish up this episode, I think the last thing we really need to talk about is Gil Arroyo, former cop, now Claremont Psychiatric Hospital resident in Malcolm's subconscious, and what does that mean? I think it's interesting interesting that and it's going to be part of my thesis and on an hypothesis on what Gil represents here but the brain triggers that Malcolm experiences throughout his time in his subconscious journey several of them are triggered by phone calls these unsolicited phone calls from Claremont on his cell phone and again in this world Martin's not there so he doesn't think he knows anyone at Claremont but every time that phone rings it's almost like a little bit of a brain trigger did you have a take on that connection of the phone ringing from Claremont and his brain pain that he seemed to be going through i feel like gill was like the representation of like the the truth even though it was the complete opposite i mean i just can we just stop a second lou diamond phillips as the inmate in claremont just making the turn and he's just got the martin cardigan on and just the wily hair the wily beard I had to do a little minute's pause. I'm like, wow. I'm like, that, that is some clever writing. But I feel like Gil was like this representation of the truth, like a reminder of the fact that Martin is who he is. And no, no flashy reality, no beautifully cooked filet mignons are going to negate the fact that he is, in fact, the surgeon. Gil is this reminder that the truth is out there, you know, little X-Files, but the truth is out there and it's up to Malcolm to uncover it. And he has to he has to go to Claremont to be faced with the truth. So I feel like that's what Gil is representative of here. I, I agree. And I'll take it even a little bit step forward. I think the phone calls from the from Claremont on his phone, they're almost always accompanied by a rumbling, which is the real world elevator in the shaft, you know, shaking, you know, rumbling its way down to him and Malcolm's 
real world body laying prone and unconscious at the bottom of the elevator shaft. I think Gil represents and Claremont represents not the truth, but I think it actually represents his physical body and his conscious mind trying to wake him up. You know, if people are like watching WandaVision now, you know, there's this idea not to spoil WandaVision. And if you don't want some spoilers about WandaVision, then you should not listen. But Wanda has created this alternate reality where everyone within Westview, New Jersey is kind of trapped into playing a role in this concocted world that she has created so that Vision can still be alive and they can be hiding kind of off the grid from people. That's what Malcolm Subconscious with Martin as kind of the gatekeeper of it, the Cerberus kind of, you know, standing guard is doing here. They've created this world to allow Malcolm to live out what he thinks is happiness, but really is just a trap for him to get stuck in, uh, a loop for him from not being able to break out of. And I think Gil is his conscious mind and and being framed by his subconscious as the crazy person at Claremont. Why would Martin show up there? How would Martin even know to show up there? Well, it's because the subconscious is like, nah, nah, fucker. Like, you are not invited to... You belong here. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, it, it's Martin as the sub, it's subconscious Martin as gatekeeper trying to invalidate Malcolm's actual conscious mind and his physical body, which is in pain. That's what I think the rumbling and the hand tremor comes back and the brain pain, the actual physical brain pain he's suffering in this subconscious world is all representations of Claremont being the signals, someone tapping on the glass, trying to get his attention. It's it's at Claremont. I think it's not a coincidence that it's at Claremont that he realizes he's actually laying at the bottom of an elevator shaft and that he needs to get out of there. All of that happens at Claremont because Gil represents the truth to Malcolm as strained a relationship as they ha- have this season because of what Gil is going through with Jessica and and Gil and Malcolm have been strained they haven't had the fatherly closeness this season that we saw last season and I think a lot of that is because Malcolm is spending a lot of time with Martin and maybe pushing Gil to the sides a bit I think in Malcolm's truest heart of hearts Gil still represents the truth and he is a truth seeker he tells us he tells subconscious Martin he is a truth seeker and so Gil is the representation of that and so even though he tries to push back against claremont gill and say you know my father is a surgeon and not the surgeon it, it all falls apart really quickly and he realizes that this is the real truth speaking to him and even subconscious martin has to go along with malcolm because he realizes he's lost the battle a little bit here and subsequently does lose the battle but that all starts to break apart the subconscious's hold over malcolm i feel like starts to fall apart here at claremont and just martin's quip you know when uh, malcolm realizes that this is all happening in his head and just the the humor martin is still there even in um, malcolm's subconscious of you know you don't want to say that kind of thing here you know they're gonna think you belong here I definitely need like a page a day calendar of Martin's quips. I mean, there's so many of them. He has so, so many, so yeah. many of them. This episode alone. But you know what? I just want to harken back to something that you said before about how people have embraced this binge culture of TV watching. And I know that we're running long, but I'll make it quick. WandaVision is another example of how people don't know how to watch television anymore. This is a serialized show. It happens weekly. You know, Disney Plus is dropping it the same way, one episode a week. So you have to think about it in in between. So people are getting so impatient with WandaVision. And it's basically coming back to this, that they forget that stories build. You do need time to marinate on them and they do build on each other. So you need to have watched the prior episodes in order to understand the present. So just a, a, little, a little observation there with WandaVision too. 
uh, yeah, no, I, I saw some I saw some tweets from people actually just earlier today complaining about WandaVision and filler and it was just a bloated movie. And I was happy some people were like, yeah, it's called a TV show. That's what a fucking TV show is. It's just a really long movie. And sometimes there's filler because they have X number of episodes. Welcome to television. It's been around for 80 years. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, it's yeah, people have just lost the ability to sit and process and digest. It just has to roll to the next thing. It affects the way television is made. I mean, we watch a lot of TV here at Pod Clubhouse, and there are certain there are certain shows that are designed to be binged where it doesn't matter. The next episode's going to start in 15 seconds. But there are shows that are designed. They're designed with that fifth act cliffhanger. They're designed with that fifth act twist. Um, as it rolls to it goes as the screen goes black or it cuts to credits. It's designed that way because it wants to make you come back for more. It wants you to think about and process what you just saw for the week and 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 build up that anticipation. All of the air goes out of the balloon. All the air goes out of the tire when you build up that suspense and then you see the resolution of the thing in 15 seconds. Prodigal Son is a great example of that. If you get the answer, the pickup to what how Ainsley ends this episode with that giant bomb and the you know the blood on her shirt and stuff, and you just find out the answer in 15 seconds. Man, what an anticlimactic way to end an episode. It destroys the it destroys all of the narrative tension that the show has done such a good job of creating if it resolves itself just 15 seconds later in a binge culture. That's my soapbox and I'm putting it away. Uh but yeah, I mean for for me anyway, that that really is the crux of the episode. There's some fun things that were done and appeared differently that we can run through really quickly. Normally this is where we would break for our guest interview, but we don't have one this week and so I just quickly want to mention that there is no Adresa Corner this week because Adresa was missing this week, Sheila. Did you miss Adresa? I did. I got to the end of the episode I'm like, "Oh, where did Adresa go? Where was she?" So I was a little upset that Idrissa didn't even factor into Malcolm's subconscious or conscious state. But the fact that she didn't even appear in his subconscious at all, <sighs> I guess that wraps up the box on on what uh, the, what are we calling them? Maldrisa? I, I call him Maldrisa. I don't know what others. So um. I don't, I don't think that that's. I don't think that that's a thing. Obviously, yeah, it doesn't bode well that there's not even a mention of Adresa because because even in the real world, there's actually other people, other techs working the crime scene. But in his subconscious, for sure, you would think Malcolm would have Adresa there, adding some funny quips or like Adresa, why are you a talking swan and what are you doing here at the at the murder shop? There were ways that they could have brought her in there. So the fact that she's not even referenced in the episode, it's not even a oh you just missed Adresa or something like that tells me that it's significant in as far as Malcolm's real subconscious that she doesn't actually factor in to his true heart's desire, which is not a surprise. He he has never really shown a, a romantic tilt towards her. I think he values her friendship because she accepts him for, you know, flying the freak flag that she also flies. But that's a very one-sided romance. And I think it's always been that way. I don't think he's ever led her on in any kind of way. Oh, I don't think so at all. Yeah, his heart has always been kind of a Danny heart. Um, 
Um, and so I think it is telling and it's significant that she's not in the episode, even by reference. You know, even last week when Danny didn't appear in, uh, at all in last week's episode, at least we got a reason why Danny is off with Vice. You know, JT was having a baby when JT didn't appear in an episode. So I think it's telling that there wasn't even a reason why we didn't see Idrisa it, as far as Malcolm's subconscious goes, which, you know, sad for the shippers, but there you go. Uh, what were some things as we wrap up here? What were let's do a little quick fire. What were some things you noticed different in the subconscious world from how they normally are? JT was a lot goofier and a little bit friendlier, I think, towards Malcolm. Did you like that JT better? I agree with you. Did you like that JT better? That was the given back slaps and compliments and joking and, and oh, and con- thanking Martin for his golf tips that you know took three strokes off the backswing. Or- yeah, did, did yeah. you like that JT more, or do you like gruffer JT? Um, I, you know, I can't say if I like him more or not, but I just like the fact that there is this other side of his personality. And I think Malcolm knows that it's there. And I think he's going to try to bring the, that side of JT out now, knowing that it's there. Typically, when the show is going from one scene to another, we often get an overhead shot. And at nighttime, it is usually kind of a mix of light and dark, right? It's really the city skyline as it would be. Some buildings are still lit up um, on an overhead view and some others and some others aren't. There's actually a shot of that when Malcolm is headed back to the Kenmare right before he gets pushed down the elevator shaft. If you look at that, it's some of the buildings have like a really white, bright white light over it but others are dark in the fantasy world malcolm and danny go to invest go to interrogate ramon vieja and it's bleached with white light it was stark it it made me stop and i was like that doesn't look like it normally looks watch the overhead shot in the fantasy world versus how they normally shoot it and i thought it was like a, a maybe i'm just reading into it but it was definitely a change from how it normally looks so i thought that was kind of fun I didn't even notice that. I'm sitting here gate mouth right now because I'm like, what? Wow. No, but now that you said it, like I'm thinking back, I'm like, yeah, that, that was off. Another thing that I noticed was that when they were investigating the going to check on Wendell, the Bolshevik and on the art loft, there was this typewriter clacking and he's the only one that's using a typewriter, but he's very dead. There's already like the evidence markers right by the boot prints. Um, but yeah, there was just like this weird little thing with the typewriter still clicking. Yeah, I thought that was actually really cool. The typewriter sound because it because it was so eerie and it 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 gave it gave a very dreamlike quality to that whole scenario. I mean, things were changing on the fly there, right? The vagina sculpture changes into the swan. Right. The blood on the boot, the blood on the papers scattered across the floor now have bloody footprints across them, which of course Malcolm had seen right before he gets. Put pushed down the elevator shaft he had seen the bloody boot prints so that's why it was in his brain so great stuff there but the clicking typewriter was a really nice little touch that again you could totally miss it it doesn't take away anything from the episode but it was a nice little audio cue that things are weird here another fun one is in the hallway when rupert stands up and takes martin hostage they had really been playing in the fantasy world with how the Ken Mare looked. It was much brighter. It was less, much less dingy and run down. It looked like all of the light bulbs had been replaced for a lot of it. And, and polished. And polished. <laughs> and, and almost like it was an operating hotel building for the most part, though the elevator, interestingly, was still disgusting and, and graffitied and dirty. But the rest of the building looked much more current and in use, which is fun, which is a fun change. But in the hallway, there is this shift 
shifting color changes between really bright blues on the wall behind Malcolm. And when they're doing from the Rupert point of view, it's like a green, gray, kind of washed out, almost kind of how it looks in real life. So watch the scene again. Their show is playing very psychedelically with the colors of these bright blues and the washed out greens and gray hues and stuff. As Malcolm is coming to the end of what he thinks is what he needs to wake up, the color scheme really starts to kind of go all haywire, which was a lot of fun. Also, I think this is the last thing that I, I kind of noticed. There was no murder wall in Malcolm's apartment. There was no murder wall in his apartment. And it was fun because it was back when he comes in and he finds Ainsley on the couch and the murder wall is there again. And I was like, oh, I missed you. Um, <laughs> but they did have the painting of the swan, though, on the wall, which was a nice little touch. Again, another little hat tip that his subconscious was uh, fucking around with him. I think the only other one that I really noticed was that Malcolm is a detective with Danny and in the interrogation room. And the two of them are like a badass, like cop show. Oh, you know? I loved that. That rapid fire back and forth. Oh, it was fantastic. Their their chemistry is undeniable. And here it was like on prime display. It was so much fun. But it's not really obvious the first time you see them kind of double team in this room. They do it later. They do it later. And you know something is up at that point. But here... It actually took me a second to be like, why is Malcolm in the interrogation room? Malcolm is actually not a cop. He shouldn't be in that room. JT should be in that room. Ever, 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 ever. Yeah. So I really liked. And then JT coming out and saying, you guys were on fire in there. Come on. JT doesn't give compliments like that ever. So. No, especially not to Malcolm, because usually just like a, like a, why is he like that? <laughs> uh, right. And obviously the other big one is we already talked about the fact that Ainsley is not a reporter. Ainsley is a doctor who has followed a surgeon who has followed in her father's footsteps. And as Martin says, has even more talent than he does. I think there are probably a ton more. Um, oh, wait, I got one. I got one. Jessica, she's like a, like a hippie almost. Like she's got like this blonde streak through her hair and she's drinking kombucha mocktails. Oh my God. The hibiscus kombucha <laughs> mocktail was so fucking funny. was so funny. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I would love to hear more. I, I'm sure I, I probably even in my notes, I have more. But, you know, we've gone super long at this point, so I don't want to keep going on here. But definitely leave us a comment. Let us know what other fun little changes in the normal world did you see? I don't think I saw sunshine in the in the perfect world. I don't nope. know that I saw sunshine in his cage. Or her cage. Is Sunshine a boy bird? I assume or? Sunshine's a boy bird. I don't know. I, I, always, thought, I always thought Sunshine was a boy bird also. I don't well, know boy why. birds tend to be more colorful and girl birds or female birds are a little more subdued. I mean, my feathers are certainly more colorful. So uh, there you go. (laughs) All right, guys, that takes us to the end of another The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks so much for listening. If you could head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you got this podcast from to rate, review, and subscribe. So anytime that we drop a new episode, you get a notification. If you could also leave us a five-star review, that would be fantastic, greatly appreciated, and is a great way for others to find the show to get as much enjoyment out of it as you do. Thanks so much. Talk to you next. Well, no, not talk to you next week. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Again, don't miss out. Stay tuned, though. Make sure you subscribe because when we come back, we're going to have an interview with Lou Diamond Phillips and it's going to be fantastic. Can't wait. So we'll see you guys in March. Take care. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.